Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, it's great to be talking to you. I love exploring the scriptures with you. This is going to be so exciting. It is going to be so exciting. Oh, it's also, what's today? Today is the 6th, which means this is our first episode of Black History Month, or in Black History Month. So that's kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm not going to say much else about that, because I, I don't know. I feel like... I make an effort to infuse blackness into everything I bring to this show. So basically, it's always Black History Month on this show. So if y'all were expecting anything, I apologize. I don't have anything planned for Black History Month in terms of, you know, steps y'all can take. I just want you guys to get used to this idea of a consistent, honest, intentional protracted effort to work on your anti-racism efforts, whether that is consuming media that helps you stay informed or just otherwise educating yourself in history. I I feel like there's three aspects everybody needs to work on with regard to this whole anti-racism thing. You know, get your knowledge, develop your relationships, and then have some kind of commitment to do something. If you got all three of those in place, not necessarily in equal amounts, but as long as you're working on all three of those things, I think you're good. With that, let's go ahead and begin our discussion of this week's Come Follow Me lesson in the Doctrine and Covenants section 12 and 13, as well as the remainder of Joseph Smith history. I believe this is 66 to 75. But before we begin... Just wanted to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so let us go ahead and begin, I suppose, by discussing what we find in Doctrine and Covenants section 12. I believe you have something for this one, Derek. The first thing is, I'd like to draw attention to this imagery around the harvest and the sickle that comes back. We saw this in a previous section, and it's coming around, and I just want to say I was so thankful that I was able to learn from Channing and Elise this wonderful piece that they uh, shared with us about ecofeminism. Yeah. And for those that didn't hear that episode, you should definitely go back and look at that episode. And ecofeminism makes connections between the oppression of women and the oppression of the natural world and the uh, environment. So one of the things that I like about this is it's a great opportunity for people to liken the scriptures unto themselves. And they gave us a strong witness that some of us, like I didn't, wouldn't have seen myself about looking at how the land would have felt in a sense. Like, did the field want to be harvested? Like, is that, what's the whole point of that? And I think one thing that I want to remind people is that in the Bible, the land is a character in the plot. Yes, the land is a character. I'm so the glad you The land is a character that. in the plot. And we can really see that here again and, and just looking at, and definitely I don't want to resummarize everything they said, but it, I really want to share how much that, that meant to me. And I, I think that it really connects a lot with um, reframing some of our assumptions around the harvest. Like a lot of us would assume harvest is good, but if you look at the language in Revelation chapter 14, where you've got someone with a sickle harvesting 
and it actually is bad. It's destructive. In fact, I would love to see an eco-feminist approach to the book of Revelation because that is one of the most environmentally destructive I think it is the most environmentally destructive text in all of our canon. Yeah, it's pretty violent. It talks about, talks about large swaths of the land, the sea, the people, the, the everything. It's, it's basically the climate change that certain people think isn't happening. Hmm. That's, get, that's, that's what's happening in Revelation. And there's this, um, this idea of the harvest is a sort of a bad and destructive thing. Anyway... So I just wanted to point that out again, and I wanted to look at verses 5 through 8. I'm going to start out reading 5 through 7. Okay. And I want people to notice the role for initiative and individual drive here. It says, Therefore, if you will ask of me, you shall receive, and if you will knock, it shall be opened unto you. Now, as you have asked, behold, I say unto you, keep my commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Behold, I speak unto you, and also to all those who have desires to bring forth and establish this work. So the first thing I noticed is that Zion isn't something that the church leaders package for us and then send to us. Zion is something that we are supposed to seek to bring forth and to establish the cause of Zion. And I just, I just find that so empowering to see that there. Mm. I really like this as well, how um, both in verse 4 and verse 7, uh, it says, Whosoever will thrust in his sickle and reap the same is called of God. And then it says again, something that kind of reaffirms this, all those who have desires to bring forth and establish the work, like are being spoken to. This is once again a theme that we've hit on a couple of times in our last few episodes with regard to the Doctrine and Covenants of accessibility to all those who simply have a desire to serve or to participate in this work in any way. The Lord is speaking to and wants to work with everybody who has no more than simply a desire to serve Him, a desire to work, a desire to take that initiative. That's all God needs in order to work with you. And that kind of speaks to what we need to do as an institution to make sure there's a way for those who have desires to serve to have a place. Right. And let me give everyone here a pro tip because part of what I want to do is a lot of people say, oh, Derek, you're so amazing. Uh, and uh, and I, you don't actually need to tell me that. But <laughs> what I really should focus on is empowering people to do what I do. And uh, to share some of my secrets in, in what I'm doing. And here's one of my big pro tips for all of you, is to look and ask questions that highlight the tension in the text. So search for and ask questions that highlight the tension in the text, because where you can find the tension in the text, it will help you interpret the text, and it will help you not misinterpret the text, because then you're looking at it from that angle. So let's talk about the tension that I see. So in verses 4 through 7, you've got this idea of, oh, look, like if you ask, you'll receive. You should seek to, to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. Like Zion is something that we build up of our own initiative. And, and then in verse 8, it says, and here's where the tension comes in. And no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble and full of love, having faith, hope, and charity, being temperate in all things whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. So here you have a little bit of uh, attention. You've got the focus on initiative in the previous verses, and now you have this focus on some restraint 
and temperance in the next. And having those two held together, looking at that tension can help you see stuff that you wouldn't have otherwise seen in the text. Mm. And this gets back to this idea of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. A lot of people might want to use verse 8 about being loving and humble to put us in our place. People on the margins, people with less access to power and say, well, no, you need to be weighed and you you need to wait and you need to be humble and all this. That actually is best deployed against those with institutional power saying, look, Mm -hmm. church leaders cannot get anywhere. They cannot build up Zion unless they get out of the way of themselves Mm -hmm. and be humble and being full of love. And I think our leaders are at their best when they do that. This is going to be super relevant once we actually get into the Joseph Smith history portion of this lesson and talk about what Joseph and Oliver had Joseph and Oliver had to do in order to receive the revelations that they got. Right, and I think that's going to tie into what I'm going to say about priesthood in that section as well. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, discuss in section 12 before we move there, though? No, that's all I had for section 12. Wonderful, then. Let's go ahead and move straight to the Joseph Smith history, seeing as how uh, that section 13 is basically embedded in uh, the Joseph Smith history. I don't have anything I really want to start talking about until we get to that section 13 portion. Was there anything you wanted to uh, discuss with regard to, I suppose, the context or at the very least, Joseph and Oliver's relationship before we discuss what's happening here in this narrative? Right. There's a, I want to highlight this quotation. It's from, uh, from the records. I think it's an 1838 text. The Minute Book 2 is what it's called on the Joseph Smith Paper Project. Aye. And here it records. It says, quote, Joseph Smith Jr. testifies that Oliver Cowdery had been his bosom friend. Therefore, he entrusted him with many things. Bosom friend. Close I haven't quote. heard that yes, before. Bosom friend. Yes. What does that mean exactly, Derek? I think it means, I'm not sure exactly what the ultimate significance. It could be like friends who rest against each other's bosom, possibly. Or it could be like siblings who share uh, the same bosom bosom to nurse from, that they they grew up together. I'm not sure exactly. It just sounds just, close. Yeah, and, I'd say. It sounds like it's just a way a to say close. Like, it's, I think it's just a 19th century way of saying, look, you're really intimate in, in some way. Got you. Now, I want to contrast this because if you look at the historical record, they met on April 5th of 1829 and that the priesthood was restored, the Aaronic priesthood was restored on May 15th. That's just over a month. Hmm. They really didn't get a chance to know each other well except through translating the text together, translating the Book of Mormon together. I'm sure Mm -hmm. they spent hours together. But still, a month is way too, is very, very fast. And so what I want to do is contrast with this with uh, what happens here in verse 28 of the Joseph Smith history. So Joseph recounts that he was betrayed by many of those closest to him. He says that he was, quote, persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends and treated me kindly, close quote. However, here, Oliver just randomly comes along. He's a complete stranger, someone on the margins of the community. He's not even from that area. And then he goes uh, from New York to visit Joseph in Pennsylvania, and that's the month that they knew each other. 
And so by the time of their baptism and ordination, they had known each other just over a month. Mm. And let's look at the interesting thing about this. As a result of this ironic transposition of fortunes, I suppose, the neighbors and ministers who could have gotten all these blessings didn't. They could have gotten those blessings first. But uh, these blessings went to someone on the margins. And this is another testimony of the eternal truth that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And those who knew Joseph for a long time and should have been his friends ended up not receiving these blessings. But then a stranger came along and got those blessings. Derek, did you by chance think of the uh, parable of the great banquet as as you spoke about this just now? I did, yes. The people who were invited didn't show up and the people who weren't invited ended up being there. Yeah, in fact, like, the day of the great banquet, when the people didn't show up, the Lord was like, go get people off the streets and bring them in here so mm-hmm. we can like have a full feast. And I just found it very interesting and remarkable how it was not two days that Oliver Cowdery had showed up at uh, Joseph Smith's door and th- that he was like, that he started working on the translation. Like between their actual right. meeting and Oliver beginning work for Joseph on the translation of the Book of Mormon, it was only two days. And that's just amazing to me. And then within a month, as you said, it was just over a month before it was the two of them receiving the Aaronic priesthood, the two of them baptizing each other. Like a lot happened in a short amount of time, basically because of what you just said. All these other people that should have been his friends, these people that should have respected and understood these things that Joseph was talking about, religious leaders, uh, people who had mentored him perhaps, or people who had who he had looked up to, it should have been them, but they didn't show up to the feast. Oliver did, though, and he reaped those blessings very quickly. Mm-hmm. Two days for the translation work, and then another month or so before he got the priesthood, and got to behold great visions. Yeah, so I want to sort of jump towards this uh, this one day on the 15th of May when they received a vision of John, John the Baptist. Yeah. And they received the authority to baptize, and they baptized each other, and then they received the priesthood. Yeah. And I want to ask some questions that highlight the tension in this text. Mm-hmm. Remember, that's okay. my secret. Okay, try to figure out where the tension is. Now, if you look at the text carefully, on the one hand, the text is about the necessity of restoring regular authority, right? But Uh on the other hand, the text also narrates some very unusual elements. Joseph and Oliver get the power to baptize each other before either one of them is baptized or ordained. Mm -hmm. And then they baptize and ordain each other and because they're doing it to each other, it leads to a question of the chicken and the egg. Like, did <laughs> what, did they have the authority to, you know, like, how does that even work? And then, after all that, they receive an apparently a second ordination. I'm not r- real sure exactly how the text is narrating it, but it looks like, in some sense, John ordained them first, then they baptized each other, and then they ordained each other a second time, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I've heard and a so couple. This is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. And so I'm just like highlighting the tension about that's really inher- deeply inherent in this narrative around, on the one hand, you've got the validity and necessity of priesthood authority, but then you've got some of these questions around the propriety of priesthood acts and the order and like all these other things going on at the same time. 
Right. So what do you? What were your thoughts? Uh, I was just going to say, like, I remember looking this up because we were like in conversation with uh, Channing and Elise about this earlier this week, and I remember looking up what the particular or what might have been the explanations for, uh, you know, this rather peculiar order of operations that was happening here, and I didn't really find anything satisfactory. Like the thing that made the most sense, but still didn't really stand up to any scrutiny, was this idea that John the Baptist conferred upon them the Aaronic priesthood, but like Joseph and Oliver had to ordain each other to offices in the priesthood or something like that. And even that didn't really stand up to a whole lot of scrutiny. So I'm still just as confused as I was before about the order of these things, but it wouldn't be the first time that we saw priesthood ordinances get repeated or, I mean, we Mm -hmm. saw this in the New Testament. We saw this in the book of Acts. We saw people who were baptized before get rebaptized. So I'm just like, it's not totally out of order that, uh, or not totally foreign, this idea that people either have to get rebaptized or, you know, their or their getting ordinances out of order. Like, I just decided at that point I wasn't going to worry too much about the peculiarity of the order Mm -hmm. of operations here. So I have no answers is what I'm trying to say. Well, I want to just explore and sort of almost play in this absence of answers in a, in a good way. And okay. I love thinking about irregularities. In fact, so much of queer thinking is about dissolving boundaries and transgressing categories and blowing apart expectations. You know, because we, we don't fit in these boxes, so let's just destroy the boxes. You know, that's kind of where we are. And I'm getting a lot of this thinking from not just my own lived experience, but also Patrick Chang, who's a queer theologian in the Episcopal Church. He talks a lot about how queering is about dissolving these boundaries and these binaries and finding the gray and finding some spectrum and some gradation in here and it's not all or nothing or black and white thinking. But for some people, especially I imagine those raised in the church, priesthood is all about these stark binaries. Either you hold the priesthood or you don't. Either your actions are valid or they aren't. Yeah. But queer thinkers like me love to explore the ambiguities in these gray areas because we're not limited to just the two categories. So when I think about authority, for me, I go back to the account in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 40, where Jesus, for me, definitively blows apart this binary thinking about priesthood authority. So here's what happens. Some of the disciples, and I love how the disciples are, are kind of clueless in, in some of the Gospels because that, there's some good lessons there. And some mm-hmm. of these disciples saw others that they didn't know, so just some random strangers, driving oh, yeah. out demons in Jesus' name, mm-hmm. and the disciples told the others to stop. And then Jesus c- comes and basically says, so what if you don't have any evidence of their valid authority? So what if you've never heard of them? So what if they aren't part of us? They are doing miracles in my name, and whoever is not against us is for us. That is very interesting. I I, yeah. dare, I don't mm-hmm. know if I told you this, Derek, but like this was a huge hangup for me during my mission was coming across that particular verse. I'm just like, so what does that mean for us? Like, what is the Savior, te- what is he teaching us here? Because I've been taught for a long time that we're the only ones with this authority. And as far as I know, and as far as the as apostles know, these disciples that Jesus himself called, they don't remember Jesus calling those people, casting out demons in his name. Like, I mean, on the one hand, I get where the disciples are coming from because they're just like, they don't follow with us. We forbade him. In fact, that's the words they use. We forbade him because they followeth not with us. And then Jesus turns around and says exactly what you just said. Whosoever is not with us is 
is not against us, is for us. And I just remember being confused about that. I'm just like, well, what are we doing out here then? Was basically Mm -hmm. my retort Mm -hmm. to that explanation. Because he basically said that my responsibility was not to discourage others from doing good. And I accepted that for the time being. But I didn't actually think of it the way you're presenting it now. I really like how you are highlighting that you know, slight messiness, but in a good way, as you said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so for me, the priesthood is simply a concrete distillation and expression of the divinity which we all share as rightful children of God. That's important, so I'm going to say it again. Thank the you. priesthood is simply a concrete distillation and expression of the divinity which we all share as rightful children of God. I hope people understand what I mean, because Mormons might not even know what distilling is, but <laughs> it's where you take a pre-existing alcoholic uh, beverage and you boil it and recondense it. And so it's already there. You're, you're just working with something that's already there, but you're just distilling it. You are t- you know, bringing out the essence of it. You're condensing it. You are making it a little stronger. You're making it a little more prominent. But distilling doesn't work unless you've got alcohol there to begin with. But anyway, so that's what I mean by the priesthood is a distillation of what we already all have as rightful and literal children of God. It's that priesthood power and authority and essence that comes from being offspring of the God in whose name priesthood power is wielded. Neat. I like that explanation. So that's what I'm thinking about in terms of of priesthood ordination. So from the standpoint of queer thinking, priesthood, and I'm talking about this boundary blurring and and category dissolving feature of queer thinking. And from that standpoint, priesthood ordination partially blurs the binary categories of God and humanity. And it partially dissolves the neat boundary between divinity and and humanity, right? So uh-huh. this is especially true when we conceive of priests as intermediaries between God and humans, this sort of really intermediary figure, not just intercessory, but also like something that's in between, like mm-hmm. participating both in some aspects of God and some aspects of humanity. And you know, whenever we talk about priesthood, I think there are two sources we should always engage. The first is the gospels, our source of Jesus's earthly ministry. And the second source is DNC section 121. Now, in Jesus' ministry, he held no institutional power. He didn't dominate or oppress people on the margins. He spoke from the margins in solidarity with all those who lacked institutional access, like he did. And that is true priesthood after the order of the Son of God, after his example. And when we look at priesthood that way, priesthood is actually the rejection of power and dominion over others. And that gets, of course, into DNC section 121, which I don't have in front of me, but it's the one that says, you know, by sad experience we learn that as soon as men, I think it actually says men, but as soon as men get a little power, they begin to exercise unrighteous dominion, and that as soon as you do this, uh, amen to the priesthood of that man. And so that's where I want to go with what priesthood is about. It should be, and, and we hear this in conference about, oh, priesthood is about service and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I, in order to bring this out, I want to share a quote from this uh, Peruvian theologian. He's a Roman Catholic. His name is Gustavo Gutierrez. And I will share, let me get this book, hold on. Um, this is his book, Gutierrez's uh, Theology of Liberation. 
And here's, here's, before I get to the quote though, I want to talk a little bit about what I mean by the word sacramental. It's a very rich word that is hard to pin down. I've heard of sacrament, and in our church, we don't really talk about the sacrament, but others, most Protestants have two sacraments. Catholics uh, have seven, including uh, baptism and the communion, the Lord's Supper. So sacraments are ordinances. Yeah. yeah. And so I've heard of sacraments considered as outward signs of an inward grace. I've also heard of sacraments as something ordinary that points to something extraordinary. Sacraments are about tangible elements such as bread and wine and the water of baptism that points to an intangible reality that is much greater. So people are asking like, why does water do this? Like what's the point of the bread? You know, The point isn't that, it, it points to something beyond itself. And so in this quote, Gustavo, talks about how the church should be sacramental itself in this way, embodying and symbolizing something way beyond itself. So let's, let's get into what he says. Here's what he says. As a sacramental community, the church should signify in its own internal structure the salvation whose fulfillment it announces. Its organization ought to serve this task. As a sign of the liberation of humankind in history, the church itself, in its concrete existence, ought to be a place of liberation. A sign should be clear and understandable. Hmm. If we conceive of the church as a sacrament of the salvation of the world, then it has all the more obligation to manifest in its visible structures the message that it bears. Since the church is not an end in itself, it finds its meaning in its capacity to signify the reality in function of which it exists. Hmm. Outside of this reality, the church is nothing. Because of it, the church is always provisional, and it is towards the fulfillment of this reality that the church is oriented. This reality is the kingdom of God, which has already begun in history. Close quote. So just to summarize, because that was a big wall of text. Using and a this whole con Yeah. Um, to use this concept of sacrament, of something that's visible, that's pointing towards something larger and deeper beyond it, that's what he says the church should be, is if we do conceive of the church as sacramental in some way, it needs to, in every visible way, in its structures, point towards the liberation and salvation of all of humanity that it points towards. Hmm. And I see this a lot culturally in our church where we talk about the church, right? Oh, the church this, the church that, the church whatever. The church isn't about the church. Right. Let me say that again. The church is not about the church. I, I can't believe that that's such a very profound statement, but the church isn't about the church. So what are your reactions to this quote? I really just like how the focus is on uh, what the church does and how, I mean, wh what was the end of that quote? How like the end of the church or the, like it should point, like mm -hmm. the church isn't an in, in and of itself. It should be pointing to what ought to be the expression of our beliefs. Like, I just like how the focus is more on what the church does and not what the institution says it is or what it says it does. Like, this is what I notice a lot about our own faith like we say and we declare our beliefs a lot of the time however it is obvious that we don't always appear 
to really embody those beliefs in mm-hmm, the ways mm-hmm. that are the most necessary. Like it's easy. It is very easy to condemn racism. You know what I'm saying? It's very easy to say mm-hmm. that racism is bad. But for whatever reason, it was really hard, so much so that it took seven years for it to happen. It was really hard for our leaders to even say Black Lives Matter. And I suspect it would be just as hard for the members of this church to embrace anti-racism in any real, you know, consistent and intentional efforts because that work is super uncomfortable. Uh, But anyway, just this goes back to say, I just really like how there is a focus, not necessarily on what we declare we are as a church, but in how we embody the principles of the gospel as a church. And furthermore, that the institutional church is not the church. Like, I believe that's mm. what your, that's what your, the church is not the church statement is ultimately pointing to. We are the church, you know? And you, I think you talked about this last week or two yeah. weeks before, but just we as the people who attend and go to this church, it's like, it's us. Like, we are the body. We are the church. We are the people who make this stuff go around and run this stuff at the end of the day. Without us, there isn't a church. So it falls on us to really be the people, to really be the ones who embody these principles of the gospel that we declare we are all about. So anyway, that's my reaction. And that's my basic expectation of priesthood leaders, uh, you know, church institutions, is that they point to Christ and get out of the way. I mean, that's what my model is. Like, I don't want it to be all about me. Right. I want it to, I want to point to Christ and then get out of the way because I'm not the point. Right. And that's what I mean by the church isn't the point of the church. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. it's, uh, so many culturally we're, we're, th- we're all about converting people to the church. I'm like, really? That's where you're limiting it? Right. right. Like, that's so, the point. Going back to Gutierrez's statement, this provisionality, I love this this term. We don't really talk about the church as provisional. We think about this church as, you know, awesome and like amazing and it's the best thing ever. But it's really provisional. And this provisionality is why for me, I don't think we need to be, quote, let into their institutional structures in order to access God. Mm-hmm. God isn't in their structures. God may be in their lives, but God isn't in their structures. God is right here among us, on the margins, playing with us in the in-between spaces. And if they, the leaders, if they want the power of God in their lives, they need to come to where we are because Mm -hmm. that's where God is. Now, yes, for the sake of equality and justice, we do need full institutional access, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. saying we don't need that and we we, we absolutely should do that. Yeah. But we need to be let into their institutions, not so that they can bless us, but so that we can bless them. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm reframing this entire power piece around this. A lot of people say, Derek, why don't you do more to X, Y, Z? Well, actually, people don't say that to me, but they could. They could say, <laughs> well, why aren't you like begging for more crumbs and more institutional access and stuff? And obviously, that is that is my goal too. But I'm really about empowering the individual to figure out and see the way that God is already present mm-hmm. on the margins with them, because that's mm-hmm. where Jesus came. And it's the whole message of the incarnation, of coming into a manger and then dying on a cross, is, mm-hmm. is getting into the icky spaces. And I want to talk a little bit about Dumbo's feather. 
if I could just for a moment, Derek, oh, yeah. just to like highlight what you just said there. And if God is with us in the margins, then we have a lot more power than we give ourselves credit for in mm, terms of mm-hmm. discovering God and making sure that he sees us in ways that perhaps the institution isn't capable of seeing us at the moment. Um, I wanted to just take a moment to, you know what, actually go ahead, talk about Dumbo's feather. I can come back to this later. Okay, well, write it down so you don't forget. Good idea. Let's talk about Dumbo's feather. So in the uh, 1941 Disney movie Dumbo, there's this little, and it's been years and years and years since I've seen it, but basically there's this small orphaned elephant who has the magical power of flying with his large ears. But he doesn't believe in himself. He doesn't think he has the power to fly. So someone tells him, like, oh, as here I have a magic feather. Look at this magic feather. This is a magic feather that isn't it suspicious how it's just called a magic feather? <laughs> there is like, so much wrong with that magic film, with <laughs> with like yo, know, there's there's problems. There's some <laughs> some big problems with that film. Yeah. But someone says, Oh look, Dumbo, here's this magic feather, and as long as you hold on to this magic feather in your trunk, you can fly. And and look, it worked. And the real truth was there was no magic in that feather. Dumbo just needed a psychological anchor to reframe the situation and give him the courage and the empowerment and the access and a concrete and tangible, and this gets back to the sacramentality piece that I talked about earlier. There's something really real about the feather and its magic, not that it had actual magic, but it had a magical effect on Dumbo, and he was able to fly with the feather when he was not able to fly without it. And I see this all the time when we talk about the priesthood or the church. A lot of these things end up to me, and, and this is just for me, I can't speak for everyone else, but a lot of these end up for me being a powerful anchor or symbol in our lives. And, and the point about the symbol is, is like, where does this reality point? Is like, what is this pointing towards? We've all heard this language, like someone will come up with some uncertainty or ambiguity or some really important question. And then people will answer, oh, well, somehow it will all work out. Bro. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dude. God will will work it out somehow. Can I just tell you, like, one of my least favorite things to deal with in conversations on anti-racism is when inevitably some white dude just comes up and says, we just got to respect each other. We just got to treat each other better, and that'll fix everything. And I'm just like, bro, like, that is not as, first of all, not a satisfactory answer at all. Oversimplification of everything. And secondly, that doesn't directly address what we're dealing with right now and what the real problem is. Like, I, yeah. these blanket answers, these blanket responses to these questions, just, these aren't going to satisfy people. And I just wish right, members right, of the church yeah. would understand that. And you know what it is, is that they didn't go to divinity school like like some of us did. Um, <laughs> okay, so I want to help. I want to actually, instead of just really criticizing people for for doing the best with what god gave them i'm going to Mm. what doing the best with what god gave them i don't know that that is a fair way to explain (laughs) what is going on i'm trying to be kind i'm trying to be kind to that well anyway so i want to help by giving people better language than oh somehow it will all work out the language i want us to say instead is maybe we should say what is the reality to which this points? Ask the question, what is the reality to which this, whatever is the, uh, the, the thing that's their uncertainty about, what is that pointing towards? And just for one quick example, let's talk about the exa- uh, temple work. 
people may ask about ancestors who left no trace in the historical record and there's no way that we could do the temple work for that person uh, and there's no way that that person has access to valid ordinances that we know of and our instinct is to say oh well somehow it will all work out maybe god will do something in the millennium it'll all work out it'll be all god will work it all out right but another angle to say and this is a little bit more powerful is to ask instead what is the ultimate what is the ultimate reality to which the temple work points right what is the reality to which temple work points. And we can say that temple work points to God's universal love of all humanity. Temple work points to a God who longs for the inclusion of all people. Temple work points to God's urge that no one should be left out due to when and where or how they lived. And once we have found the reality to which the symbol points, we're halfway to answering the question already, right? <laughs> and once we get there, we may or may not need to rely on Dumbo's feather, which is the thing that points us in that direction. So I'm saying a lot of things like temple work and priesthood ordination and all these other things may be a little bit like Dumbo's feather. Now, I don't want at all to, to, to seem dismissive of it, to say like, like oh, there's no magic in, in any of these things. Uh, so people might find it irreverent or whatever but i think that my position actually embodies the highest respect and care for the sacred nature of these things priesthood authority is all about pointing to god and then getting out of the way because god is the point right if i'm focusing on god and making all the glory go to god how can there be anything disrespectful or sacrilegious about what i'm saying mm. that's to me why the dumbo's feather analogy is very respectful of our tradition, right? I'm not right. at all minimizing it. Like I, sometimes I need a feather to, to just get going and, or to mm -hmm. keep going and doing hard things. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm wanting to leave this Dumbo's feather th theory of priesthood power. And, and to okay. me, this solves a lot of questions about like going back to the text. Like in, we could ask all these questions about well how did this happen like was their ordination valid why did they need two ordinations why did joseph and like how is it possible that they could baptize each other and ordain each other if they didn't have the right ordination to baptize like you could say that or you could say well let's look at this priesthood ordination what does that entire narrative point to and it points mm -hmm. to a god who loves us mm -hmm. a point who wants to get involved in our lives and break into our world again and mm -hmm. restore something amazing right yeah. and once you you ask yourself the reality to which that symbol points you basically answered your question right mm -hmm. so that's all i have to say on section uh 13 which is part of this uh this language here so okay. i want to hear what you, any responses to that or do you want to talk about uh what you had to point out about the fellow servants i wanted to talk about something that I actually picked up from the Come Follow Me manual with regard to Doctrine and Covenant section 13. It highlighted something in here that I really appreciated about John the Baptist's uh, conferral of the Aaronic Priesthood. And that was the My Fellow Servants bit. I think in the Come Follow Me manual, they talk about just how humbling it must have been for Joseph and Oliver to be referred to as My Fellow Servants. Now, 
it was either you or a listener or Bishop or Bishop Simpson a while ago. But it, this was back when we were talking about the New Testament in 2019. But I want to say it again because I think this insight is relevant here, particularly when we talk about the inclusive nature of the work of Zion and establishing the cause of Zion and how necessary all of us are to it. But uh, the insight, I remember, was about the language that uh, Jesus used and that John would subsequently use centuries later about their roles in this work. Now, when John, when Jesus first came on the scene uh, to be baptized of John, John said something along the lines of, this person coming, I'm not worthy to tie this dude's shoes, was basically what he said, as he spoke of who would come and baptize them with the Holy Ghost. And then came Jesus. John's feelings were reiterated again when Jesus came to this, when uh, Jesus came to John. I have need to be baptized of thee, is what he said. And then John is again leaning into this idea of his own unworthiness and of his own nobodiness. And then Jesus hits him with the punchline. And I love this. Jesus says, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And I was just like, yo, Jesus just let John know, my guy, you got a role to play in this too. And I can't do my job without you. I came, what was it, between like Galilee and uh, freaking Jordan? Probably like 100 miles at least. And he was like, I came 100 miles to be baptized by you. You are important to this work. This just ain't my work. This is our work. And we got to do it to fulfill, and we got to do it to fulfill all righteousness. And now here we are nearly 18 centuries later, and John says to Oliver and Joseph, upon you, my fellow servants. Like, it's just such a beautiful thing that John seemed Mm -hmm. to take that lesson, what I believe to be a lesson of inclusion from the Savior himself. And then he passed it on to these men who probably deemed themselves nobodies the same way John deemed himself a nobody. Like, it's quite humbling to be included in this work as fellow servants with the Savior and with John the Baptist, at like it's also empowering to be a fellow servant, to know that our obscure selves, like the nobodies that we are at the ground level, are an active part in the shaping and the expansion of this church. We're not passive followers in this business. It is not our job to simply uh, fall in line and do what the brethren say and just hope everything works out or to say that, you know, it'll all be worked out in the next life or whatever. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that is not our job. And also the brethren, they are not the church. As you've already said, the church is not the point of the church. We are all the church. We are all necessary and we are all fellow servants. That title of my fellow servants that John gave Joseph and Oliver is both a line blurrer and a great equalizer. You know, all of us at once became people that like, like it became a very egalitarian institution. The church did in that moment when John declared to Jesus or sorry, when John declared to Joseph and Oliver that they were fellow servants in this work. And I feel like Jesus did a similar thing when he told John, suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness that everybody had a Mm -hmm. role to play in this narrative of Jesus being the savior of the world. I just love that so much that as small as we are, we got a role to play and we have an impact that we can make in this ultimate story of the cause of Zion. And I want to bring this back to a very uh, thoughtful question 
that uh, one of our listeners sent to us just in the last couple of days. Uh, the question that she asked uh, referred to something that we said in one of our previous episodes. I think it was you that said this, Derek. It's important for those of us who are free and willing to impart more strength and more resources to our church leaders so that they can run faster. And uh, she wanted us to speak more about what this looks like in the church. Ultimately, she listed several examples and then to make the point that if there was a proper feedback method to get info, opinion, thoughts, and ideas from members to the top leaders, then we would be way ahead of other churches and institutions. So basically she's saying what we propose, there's not really a way for that to happen in the church, which is, you know, a fair thing to say in my opinion. But at the same time, I feel like she's operating from this from this assumption that the only way that we can do this work that we spoke of doing last week or the week before is doing it within the parameters that the church has set. And that's the mm -hmm. uh, error and assumption that I think is being made here. Because without going into too much detail, the brethren, or at least some of the brethren, know who Derek and I are. And that's not because we went through proper church channels. Like, we didn't go through our bishops or our stake presidents for them to know who we were. We just did our thing operating outside of the parameters of the church to declare our truths. And now people know who we are, which is, you know, is what it is. But I just want to like highlight a specific example of how I know that what we do outside of the parameters of the church can have an effect on the brethren where they are. Now, after the last general conference in October, um, in that particular general conference, a lot of things were said about racism, a lot of things, more than has probably ever been said in the last decades of general conferences combined. And also it was the first time that anybody had said something against anti-black racism in a conference. So it was a historic conference in terms of racism. So I consequently got called by both KUER and Deseret News to like give an opinion on basically what the brethren had said about racism at conference. And I listed two, and I said two things uh, primarily. I said, no, I said that, yes, this is a big step and this is history making, but I also said, this is not enough. I had specifically said, I want to hear leaders say Black Lives Matter and I want them to mention white supremacy and uh, police brutality by name. I want them to be specific about what these attitudes and actions of prejudice look like. It was not, it was about three weeks after that where Elder Oaks gave his particular talk, his devotional at BYU, and he finally mentioned police brutality as a uh, manifestation of white supremacy. Now, I'm not going to say I had anything to do with that, but what I am going to say is that because somebody brought this to his attention, perhaps, finally somebody was able to say in the church that police brutality was a product of white supremacy and finally somebody was able to say Black Lives Matter. So I do think that we, in our own way and in the, uh, sphere, in the spheres that we occupy, we can have an effect on the church leadership without necessarily trying to operate within the parameters that... The church has laid before us because that is one of the i mean power in the church is already hyper centralized so trying to reach them at that level is already going to be kind of difficult i 
personally don't want to try to reach the church through the church, considering how centralized the power is. I feel like what Derek and I do here is a lot better and works a lot better to uh, get our message out there because we do this on our own terms. And because we do this on our own terms, we're able to reach more people and we're able to have a broader influence. So that is how I would answer that particular question of how we, for lack of a better word, provide feedback or provide our voices to the leaders is I don't think we should be, I don't think we should restrict ourselves to methods that rely on the institutional church to get things back to the brethren. I think you could just as well, if not better, operate outside of those parameters to get the brethren's attention. And we've seen this work in the past before with mm -hmm, other uh, mm -hmm. movements and organizations. Uh, there are plenty that work outside of the umbrella of the church and have done more to advance or not necessarily advance, but certainly bring attention to causes than organizations within the church have ever done. Um, I'm thinking of the Black LDS Legacy Committee. I'm thinking of organizations like Affirmation. Even though they're not an activist organization, most of the, I mean, they do a lot that the Brethren have taken taken notice of. So, right, uh, yeah. There, there's a lot we can do, is what I'm trying to say, that can uh, let the Brethren know the mind and the will of the people without necessarily going through the institutional church. Okay, that's like the third time I've said that, so I'm going to move on. Yeah, well, th and this ties in with what I said earlier about institutional access. Yes, sir. And how God's not in their institutions, right? God's among us. And so I'm saying that not to dismiss at all the idea of, of full and just equality in, the, in, in access. Like, yes, right, that is right. what we need. But I want to empower people to not to not uh, delegitimize their own value and experiences because God's with us. And I just want to reiterate what you said about there's ways of, of getting feedback to the brethren. Um, yeah. And, uh, and a lot of it, because I think, I really think that among every church that I know of, our church is the one that cares most about what people are thinking and saying on the outside. Interesting. They, ha they literally have teams of people in that church office building, and their full-time job is to scour social media and see what people are saying about the church. We have the biggest public relations department of any church, I th I'm assuming. I don't know. I don't know the numbers. But we have a big public relations. We, we're all about the marketing. You know, we may not be good in our theology, but we're good in our business and marketing, right? <laughs> that's, that's who the Lord somehow called to be leaders in this church. And so they're on top of this. Like, they're on top of it more than I'm on top of my dating profiles, right? Checking them every, <laughs> like, they check. They've got people checking social media. They've got people checking the anti-Mormon websites. They've got people checking everything. I think, and they hear about it. Now, the brethren aren't there sitting on Twitter all the time, but they've got teams of people who re make reports, and those reports go to the bureaucrats, and those bureaucrats have access to the brethren. So it's it goes somewhere. Do you remember the time where there was a, three vacancies in the Quorum of the Twelve all at one time. This must have been like four years ago, something like that, four or five years ago. And they were all filled with white dudes. old white men. Old white men. Three yep. old white American men. Mm -hmm. And then everyone in the progressive Mormon world complained and said, look, what, what are you doing? Like, 
Why don't you have members of color? Why don't you have non-Americans? And then the next time there were two uh, vacancies, they chose one uh, Chinese American and one Brazilian mm-hmm. into the Quorum of the Twelve. I mean, I, I, that's not a coincidence. They totally, they, they got it, right? They heard it. Mm-hmm. They heard it loud and clear. No one actually had to send them a letter because they've been stalking, <laughs> they've been stalking the, the everything, right? Yeah. So there, yeah. there's ways of getting it, getting stuff done. Yeah. Anyway, I'd like to uh, move on to Joseph Smith history. Seventy. I want to go to verse 74 here because there's some beautiful things happening in here that I just want to bring out. And I would love to hear your thoughts on these, Derek. But uh, I've noticed in here a pattern that seems to have repeated itself or at least be deeply ingrained in Joseph's practice of his faith is uh, stopping and asking questions when he come across when he comes across things in the text that he's curious about. At this point in the history, Joseph and Oliver have come across things about, uh, you know, about baptism and whatnot. And they're going into the woods to, uh, they're going into the woods to pray and ask some more questions about it. But uh, something that really stood out to me about this thing is that it became very clear that Joseph had a habit of, and even at this point, he has demonstrated a desire to do more than just complete the job of translating the text. He wants to comprehend the text. This work of translation Mm -hmm. was so much more to Joseph than merely the translation itself. He wanted to understand what he was doing or understand these words that he was translating. And based on uh, the Oliver Cowdery footnote here at the uh, conclusion of the history, he seemed to have the... uh, the same feeling and uh and he articulates he articulates it so poetically and so well you know let me just read it right quick this little paragraph here so this this is oliver speaking here he says no men in their sober senses could translate and write the directions given to the nephites from the mouth of the savior of the precise manner in which men should build up his church and especially when corruption had spread and uncertainty over all forms and systems practiced among men without desiring a privilege of showing the willingness of heart by being buried in the liquid grave to answer a good conscience by the resurrection of jesus christ yo man that is so pretty i I love just like the poetry in that i had to read it a couple times i'm not i'm not like a poetic person i don't really like poetry like that i had to read it a couple of times to get it but what oliver is basically saying is that it's very difficult to be engaged in this work of translation and reading the savior's words and the history of the nephites and their dealings with the lord and not want to be engaged in the practices that he's teaching them like how you gonna read consistent calls to repentance and baptism and not want those things for yourself like Right, Keep in mind yeah. where they're at in this process. Like you, you come across the first uh, instance of re- baptism by immersion for, uh, you know, the remission of sins and repentance and authority. You get hit with all three of those ideas by the first time you come across baptism in the book of Mosiah. You come across it some more in Alma. And certainly by the time we got to third Nephi and we got to the specifics of the ordinance itself and uh, the clarity that the Savior added to it, of course they wanted to understand baptism and you know 
seek more guidance on how to go about that. They probably had questions about, you know, where to get the authority or if they needed baptism. I, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what questions they were bringing, but it makes sense that after you read so consistently all those verses and passages and stories about baptism and the authority to baptize and seeing the word priesthood so many times in the book of Alma, you probably had some questions. So like, that makes total sense to me, and I'm just really glad that uh, Oliver brought that out and demonstrated that he knew keenly how important it was to not just do this job of scribing, but also uh, understanding what they're writing. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and yeah. like I found this other thing that uh, apparently, or at least reportedly, when Joseph Smith and uh, Oliver Cowdery were doing this work, they would often talk about what they were working on talk about mm -hmm, what they were translating right. and reading and writing like it wasn't just a you know translate write translate write or whatever they legitimately had conversations about the stuff they were translating which i just think is really cool and it also explains a lot of their you know how you know their close relationship because you know obviously talking about and engaging in deeply uh spiritual conversations with somebody on a pretty regular basis would it would make sense that you have an intense uh, relationship with that person or a strong friendship with that person? Sorry, did you want to say something? Yeah, there, Derek? they went through a lot together, and yeah. I think that deepened their sense of trusting. And it, the thing is, it's it's not that they just went through something together. It's when they went through something that they shared with no one else up until mm -hmm. that point, because they said like we couldn't tell people this, and right. it's not it's not really at all like what queer people go through. But there's a sense in which when two queer people fall in love, they see something special in their relationship that they may not be able to tell everyone right away. That there's mm -hmm. something that the experience funnels them through that bonds them together and eventually blossoms into something really powerful. And I like that you highlighted it's the concrete situation on the ground their concrete concrete questions which drove the entire revelation and restoration process like oh big time it's human initiative that 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 almost every step of the way mm -hmm. every new insight or every new ordinance that came about in the restoration came about because someone here on the on the ground said hey look we need more and so why is it that people are mad about the queers doing the exact same thing <laughs> Get all ahead, we're saying man. is yes sir the dignity of LGBT folks needs to be restored. Mm. Our place needs in the church needs to be restored. And I say restored because I think, I'm, I know that we had an honored place in the premortal family council. We came to this earth knowing that we would be queer or trans or whatever we are, and we came here anyway. We had an honored place, and God did not forget it, send us here to forget about us. And I want that honored place to be restored. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And speaking of surprises, I want to bring out, go back to what you're saying about this fellow servants business, because a piece that might might not people might not get is this was a profound experience. They had an angel visit them, and I think one of the first in, instincts when you see something so profound and so otherworldly to break into your life is to be afraid, like you don't know what's going on. Another reaction is to worship. And this reminds me a lot of the uh, text in Revelation 22, verse 9, where John, and this is a different John, John wants to worship this angel, and the angel says, no, don't worship me, I'm just, uh, I'm just a fellow servant with you. Almost the exact same language right here, 
when John the Baptist, as a resurrected angel, comes and visits uh, 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 um, Oliver and uh, uh, Joseph. I, I, I'm stumbling over my words because I just thought about how John the Baptist was beheaded and now he's got his head back on and that just kind of... Uh, well, anyway, so he's a resurrected angel with his head back on. Mm-hmm. And... And uh, yeah, and so so that's kind of where it is. And uh, the whole point of that is that John the Baptist got out of the way by identifying himself as a fellow servant. And right. the angel of Revelation 22 got out of the way by identifying himself as a servant. And so I think mm-hmm. that's where priesthood is at its best is when it points to Jesus and gets out of the way. Mm-hmm. Big time. And if I could go back to this idea that you were speaking of before, Derek, uh, with regard to this is what the queer folks are doing, I think it's very instructive that the restoration of priesthood authority in this dispensation was brought about by Joseph and Oliver reading and pondering something in the Book of Mormon and wondering what it meant for them. Like mm-hmm. so much of what, uh, so much of the restoration occurred as they were seeking greater light and knowledge because of what they had learned in the Book of Mormon or because of, you know, the great, the light knowledge they were receiving. I believe revelations to such a degree are still possible today if we get out of the way. And I believe that this story of uh, Joseph and Oliver reinforces how necessary it is to read with a more critical and thoughtful eye, especially in the context of the most pressing issues in our lives, in our society, in our church, uh, you know, with, with queer folks, with black folks, with women, with people with disabilities, with people, uh, you know, on all manners of folks on the margins. The Book of Mormon is a relatively simple text, but that could like tempt us to read it superficially and perhaps apply it foolishly and shallowly, like, I don't know, waving the title of liberty at a terrorist attack on your own country's capital. But anyway, I digress. The point I'm trying to uh, make is that Joseph and Oliver both received the priesthood and the ordinance of baptism because they pondered deeply over one of the messages in the Book of Mormon. They reportedly had that habit, like I said, of pausing translation to talk about the unfolding story of uh, the Nephite nation. Basically, they were like you and I, Derek. Like... As we read the Book of Mormon, we're just two dudes with a real interest in the record and a desire to really understand it better for the cause of Zion, especially where our our people are concerned. It's kind of why this story hit me so hard, because they did basically what we're doing. They had a conversation about what they were reading, and they went to inquire of the Lord about what they had read in the scriptures that seemed relevant to the work that they were doing. And they got some pretty big answers, my guy. Like, again, the restoration of the priesthood and the baptism ordinance came as a result of them doing just that. And that's not even the coolest part of the story, Derek. Like, even though that's pretty dope and significant. In verse 74, we read, uh, And, you know, this is Joseph speaking after the experience with John the Baptist and Joseph and Oliver baptizing each other. This is verse 74. Our Mm. minds now being enlightened, we began to have the scriptures laid open to our understandings and the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages revealed unto us in a manner which we never could attain to previously nor ever before had thought of. Yo, yeah. doesn't that hit different? Doesn't that hit different? It does, um, yeah. Now, first of all, like the things that 
I noticed that were kind of interesting were the words were the highlight were the words that Joseph used here. He said the true meaning and intention of their more mysterious passages. Now I learned about the some theology jargon uh, when I last heard Dr. Willie James Jennings speak, and I think you may have uh, explained this to me before as well. But uh, just by way of uh, clarifying what this jargon is. Um, there are two words that are used a lot in theology circles. One is exegesis. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Yeah, um, exegesis. Exegesis. And the other one is hermene- hermeneutics. Um, and exegesis is basically about breaking apart scriptures and like figuring out what the meaning of a passage is by like slowing down your reading of it, breaking it apart, you know, determining what the definition of certain words at certain time periods were. And then we go to intent, which is basically what hermeneutics is all about. So like exegesis is about meaning and hermeneutics is about the intent. What was trying to be communicated in this narrative? What is being communicated in these passages and these verses? So I just found it very interesting that Joseph Smith basically highlighted uh, the, like basically what are the, I don't know what you would call them, Derek, but just like these core ideas, Mm. I guess, of theology is basically hermeneutics and exegesis, figuring out what the meaning is of these verses as well as the intent behind them. So I just thought that was interesting. But uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. You got something you want to add? Um, I wanted to add two things. Like we shouldn't have a conversation about priesthood without without naming uh, the fact that not all genders right now are able to access the priesthood the same way. So we have Correct. discrimination in our tradition at this point uh, around women and access to priesthood offices and priesthood ordination. Mm-hmm. And I want to mm-hmm. connect that back with the looking at the Bible because we're all about restoring the ancient order of things. And obviously the, the Bible itself is an intensely, uh, a, a text that's intensely set within a patriarchal context, right? So we, we can't, ignore that but we can also see that there is at least some room for women's leadership and women's roles and women's ordination in the bible and i would love to have some fresh insight among our people about hey let's go back because i can think of we've got women prophets and and we've got a woman apostle in roman 16 junia we've got a, a woman deacon in, in roman 16 as well phoebe like and Why we have women can't... fulfilling apostolic responsibilities multiple times? Yes, yes. We've got uh, Mary Magdalene being the, the the apostle to the apostles. Like, why can't we, as a whole people, read these scriptures and say, "Let's go to the Lord with with this." That's exactly what Joseph and Oliver did, and that led through a breakthrough. I think. You know why, people... Derek? <laughs> why? Because we're a misogynistic organization. Uh, we are a patriarchal yeah. organization. Like you said, we got to get out of our own way. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Our misogyny and patriarchy or our subscription to patriarchy is why we don't have these conversations. Like, let's just call that what it is. I mean, honestly, we are not going to experience what Joseph, Joseph and Oliver experienced here until we get out of our way in, in this way. Like, look at what he says here, like in these verses. He said, the scriptures were open to us in a way 
like, what, what was he say? True meaning and intention of the more mysterious passages revealed to us in a manner which we never could attain previously, nor ever before had thought of. And why would they? Because they were not conditioned to in that way. I think we cut ourselves off from so much uh, opportunity for revelation because mm-hmm. we don't want to ask these questions. We are not ready to ask these questions. Um Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, and that's why section 12 says you have to be humble if you're going to be about this work. Because you need to admit that you don't know everything and that you don't have all the facts and just being Mm -hmm. open to having your mind changed. And I think that's one of the biggest problems in our church is this issue of inertia, is people think that just because they've been making the mistake for a long time that they need to continue making it just to be consistent. I mean, we Mm -hmm. saw this with, with race and the priesthood and temple access. We see this with women and gender. We see this with uh, our trans siblings and gender identity. We see this with uh, queer folks. Like all of these mistakes are like, we just wanna keep the tradition going. They have no good answers for this. And it's they've got this bad phone to heaven and then they claim that they don't have any good answers, right? So I don't know what, they're, what piece of the connection they're missing. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. But anyway, um, after reading these verses, I just thought to myself that this exercise of reading and pondering the Book of Mormon and inquiring about its contents, it, like it not only resulted in great revelations that aided in the restoration of the church, but also it put them in a better position to understand the scriptures in a way that they haven't before. And I just, I really wish I could understand a little bit more about why that was, but, you know, that nonetheless is incredibly encouraging and empowering to me, you know, as a member of the church and as somebody who wants to see changes happen. Often, especially when preparing for the show, I ponder what might be possible for the church as a whole with this kind of consistent conscientiousness that Joseph and Oliver experienced. Like, if they were around today, like, what might be revealed to us if we had the same kind of conscientiousness? Like, it really spoke to me as I considered... Well, you and I have spent the whole of last year doing using the Book of Mormon as a tool to validate folks that are often invalidated by society and even by our community of faith in the name of Christ. Uh, We've been encouraging careful readings of the text in ways that affirm those we're not socialized to affirm. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, think for a moment about what the consequences might be of doing what Joseph and Oliver did, like how carefully, intently, and conscientiously must they have been reading and pondering the text to know to go to the Lord for further light and knowledge? And I have to ask, are we doing the same thing as we read, as individuals and uh, as a church? Might we consider what else Joseph and Oliver would have paused to inquire about if the Book of Mormon were uncovered today? Like what parts might make them stop and reconsider the things we do as a church or the things we might do? And upon reconsidering those things in thoughtful prayer and study, what revelations might we receive? And how is that going to open the scriptures to us in new and life-giving ways? Um, mm-hmm. Like, just thinking about all that just gave me so much hope and just so much encouragement. But, you know, we, we, we got to do that work. We got to be willing to do that work. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that our will- listeners are willing to be co-creators and co-laborers and fellow servants in the work with us. Like we wouldn't be here without you. Like without you, it would be just James listening to my jokes and my biblical teaching all day. And that's not fun for anyone. 
I mean, that's why I like Derek, by the way, guys. I mean, this has been our friendship long before we started the show was Derek jokes and talks about the scriptures. But like now y'all are just y'all y'all get to listen to it now. That's really all that's changed. Well, it's good to be all together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, that that's all I got for today, Derek. Yeah, that's all I have, have too. All right, cool. Then before we go ahead and slide off into these housekeeping items, just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. There's also an Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter. That's BTBLDS for Instagram and Twitter. And you can just search for Beyond the Block Podcast on Facebook. And we don't have a YouTube channel yet, but we're, we should sometime <laughs> soon, right? Yeah, like as long as we are working on video content, we'll we'll have a we'll have a YouTube channel up. Yeah. In fact, I think we technically have one, but it's just we have the one video there for the time being. We oh, haven't okay. exactly advertised it. I think there's only like a few subscribers we got on our on our podcast uh, YouTube channel. That's good. So you can look forward to some really cool short videos by James, and then some really long two and a half hour <laughs> explanations <laughs> by Derek. <laughs> no, those won't make it to the YouTube channel. Yeah, we're we're gonna have to like have a TV network for Derek's stuff. Like Derek's yeah. gonna need a documentary to like go oh. over this stuff. Coming to yeah. Netflix soon. Oh wow. Well, anyway, wow, we've been going a while, so we should let people go. I guess you're right. Um, one last thing I want to remind you guys of is the Black LDS Legacy Conference that is going to be in two weeks now, or I guess. I don't know. It's going to be February 20th. So this is coming out on Monday. So what's that like? 12 days. 12 days away is going to be the Black LDS Legacy Conference. And we know a little bit more about who's going to be there. Um, Let's Talk Sis, Alexis and Jean-Nique, or sorry, Jean-Nique and Chantel of that uh, show are going to be present. Uh, Jasmine of Jasmine Bradshaw of First Name Basis will be there. Uh, I will be delivering a keynote. There's going to be some panels. I highly just encourage you guys to check it out. It's probably the one event in the year that you guys can go to to learn more about the Black experience in, in the context of uh, in the context of our church. So I highly encourage y'all to peep that. And if uh, there's nothing else, Derek, I guess we will go ahead and let the folks go. Thank you guys for joining us till we meet again next week. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye.